What kind of example does the Torah present for our lives? What does the complex story of Isaac and Ishmael bearing Abraham teach us about family and brotherhood? In his story, A Wind from the South, Micah Streifer attempts to reconcile the disparate lives of Isaac and Ishmael while looking to the Torah for inspiration on familial relationships. Welcome to episode 11 of Exegesis, featuring the work of Micah Streifer, as read by Carrie Gitter. A Wind from the South by Micah Streifer And Abraham breathed his last, dying at a good ripe age, old and contented, and he was gathered to his kin. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hittite, facing Mamre. Genesis chapter 25 verses 8 and 9 Isaac was away from home when he got the news. Perched precariously over the side of an ancient well, he peered into the darkness below, trying to catch a glimpse of the bottom. It was hot in that part of the Negev, and Isaac was aware of a warm wind blowing on him from the south, as it sometimes did during this time of year, carrying the stifling heat up from the drier lands of Arabia where summer had already begun. He wiped the sweat off his brow. Careful, Grandpa, if you fall in, it's a long way down. The amused voice came from behind him. That was where the workers sat beneath the terebinth trees, eating their afternoon meal, trying in vain to get some relief from the oppression of the sun. One of them was having some fun with him, he knew, trying to get a laugh out of his fellows. One of the young ones, the ones who hadn't been working for him long, the ones who didn't know just how many wells he had peered into. Without turning around, Isaac wagged a bony finger back at them and smiled to himself as he heard their laughter in response. Isaac ben Abraham was no longer a young man. At seventy-five, his hands were calloused from a lifetime in the hills of the northern Negev, and his beard had long since turned to white. Isaac had a peculiar habit of twirling the corner of his mustache between two fingers when he was deep in thought, and he did so right now as he admired the well in front of him. This one, he thought, had strong retaining walls and an excellent location. Decades earlier, when this had been his father's pasturing land, This particular spot had been known for giving water that was both copious and sweet. Just a few more days digging, and he was sure it would do so again. He straightened his back, turning around, and peered in the direction of the laborers, still lounging in the shade. They looked lazy, even decadent, under those trees, but he knew how hard these men worked for him. Isaac began to walk toward them, and that was when he saw in the distance what looked like a man on a camel. Mirages were common during this part of the day, of course, but most of them didn't have such a clear form. Squinting into the sun, Isaac watched the shape grow in size and clarity until it became clear that indeed a visitor was approaching. At this, he rushed into action as he had seen his father do a thousand times. He clapped his hands, shouting to the workers to prepare tea and lay out a meal of breads and olives and oils, and rushed as fast as his legs would carry him to greet the guests. Approaching the man, he put out his arms in greeting. "'Welcome, stranger!' Will you stop and eat with us? The traveler removed the kerchief from his face, revealing a beard matted with desert sand, and responded with a smile, I thank you for your hospitality, uncle. Only then did Isaac recognize the face of his nephew, Dedan. Dedan ben Jokshan was the son of Isaac's half-brother, and the grandchild of Abraham by his third wife, Keturah. Isaac had, of course, known the sons of Keturah well when he was a younger man and they were children. He had watched them playing and seen them grow into young adulthood. That was at a time when their father was still strong, when Abraham still desired to hold the family together. 
but those bonds had begun to weaken as the boys married and started families of their own, and had been all but severed by Abraham's unexpected announcement that Isaac, and Isaac alone, would be his heir. That was when Keturah's children had made their way toward the south and the east to settle the desert lands. As he helped the younger man down from his beast and embraced him, Isaac was hit by a rush of memories, young Jokshan playing around the camp with his brothers Midian and Ishbak, getting into mischief and being scolded by the women. The astonished eyes and incredulous faces of the Keturahite brothers as they learned that they would inherit no part of father's fortune. The backs of their heads as they left for good, riding into the morning sun with their wives and children, including Dadan, in tow. It had been the last time Isaac had seen most of his half-brothers since, racked with guilt and not wanted to stir up old wounds, he had never been to visit them. He quieted his conscience by telling himself that the family needed him here to oversee the workings of the estate, not running off on world travels. Occasionally a representative would pass through bearing news or seeking money and gifts, which Abraham always granted happily. And then the family would gather to eat and drink and sing and dance and tell stories of the old days. Those were wonderful times, moments in which it felt to Isaac that all was right with the world, his family reunited, his kin come home. But those times had been, become fewer and further between. In recent years, Dedan, a merchant and a traveler, was the only one of the Keturites who still came this way, and even he was no longer seen very often. What brings you to this part of the Negev? Isaac asked excitedly as he loosed his embrace. Come, I want to show you my latest project, a well that once belonged to your grandfather. Uncle, Dedan interrupted, his smile gone now. I wish I was here simply for a visit, but I bring important news. I was traveling through on a trade mission and stopped at Abraham's camp as I occasionally do. Only this time things felt different, quieter, more subdued. Is there a problem in my father's camp? Isaac asked, though he already knew the answer. Isaac, your father is dying. I have been sent to bring you back as quickly as possible. He had known that this day would come soon. The recent months had brought a change in Abraham's demeanor, slowing down in his movements, sometimes forgetting where he was, coughing and wheezing in ways that frightened everyone around him. The irony was that as far as Isaac was concerned, Abraham had always been an old man. Isaac was, after all, the child of his old age. But this was different. This was a severe, heartbreaking failure of strength and memory. This was death crouching at the door. In fact, Isaac had hesitated over the last two months even to leave the camp, not wanting his father to slip away while he was absent. This three-day expedition to oversee the digging of the new well had only come after much careful consideration. After all, how long can one be expected to sit and wait for death? As he rode toward Beersheba that afternoon to don by his side, Isaac prayed only to arrive while his father still breathed. Approaching the camp, he could see Eliezer rushing out toward him. Abraham's trusted servant and business partner looked haggard and sad. He asks only for you, the man whispered as they drew near each other. Isaac rushed to his father's tent. He did not stop to greet his own wife. He threw only a passing glance at his twin sons, out in the fields arguing about something as usual. He entered the gloomy shelter, adjusting his eyes to its darkness, and wordlessly took his father's head into his hands. During the long hours spent in that tent, Isaac was struck by the strangeness of the events that had led him there. 
that the sons of Keturah, silent for so many years, should reemerge at this moment, that an unseen force should have guided them back into his life just as his father was approaching death, just as everything was about to change. When he was young, Isaac's mother used to talk about footprints of the nameless one. Sometimes we see God's feet, Sarah would say, and sometimes we only see his footprints. In fact, when he was very young, she sometimes referred to him as her little footprint. Isaac's very life had begun in such a moment of providence, a mysterious announcement by a mysterious visitor. How fitting and how strange that the final moments of his father's life should be heralded by such an event as well. Sometimes life works that way, he thought. Sometimes things come full circle. Hours later, Isaac emerged bereft and exhausted from the tent. As the servants entered with a burial shroud, he fell into the loving arms of Rebecca, managing only a few words, the world is different now, before dissolving into tears. Rebecca held her husband for a long time as he wept silently. She nodded in silent agreement. It was true. Her father-in-law was larger than life, a bundle of charisma who spoke to God and men alike, who commanded the respect of peasants and chieftains, who could change minds with a single word, and who regularly negotiated treaties in his dining tent. It was hard to believe that such a man could be gone. It was hard to believe that Isaac, her Isaac, could take his place. Finally, Isaac broke the silence, shifting his focus to the concrete tasks ahead of him. We have work to do. We'll need to arrange passage to Hebron. I'll need to have Eliezer send runners to tell all the chieftains, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the king of Gerar. I can't even imagine how many dignitaries will come for the burial. His voice trailed off. Are you going to tell him? Him? It took a split-second moment before Isaac understood to whom his wife was referring, and when he did, his heart dropped. Shaking his head with a sigh, he lowered his eyes to the ground. Isaac, don't you think he has a right to know that his father is dead? He's your brother. A brother I haven't spoken to in decades, the child of the slave. Your father's firstborn son, she paused, and a man who has not had an easy life. Isaac didn't hate his older brother Ishmael. He was wary of him. Sometimes he pitied him. Occasionally he feared him. But most of the time he simply preferred not to think about him. That tendency had been cemented early on by his mother's fury at the very mention of that slave woman. Sarah would never speak the name of Hagar, the servant-turned-wife who had given birth to Abraham's eldest son, and for that reason the old man had refrained from speaking about her, or her unfortunate offspring, except with his most trusted advisers. Isaac had only occasionally been part of such conversations, but he had gleaned a few important pieces of information. He knew that it had been painful for Abraham to send them away. He knew that Abraham cared about Ishmael, and had even been to visit him, though he knew nothing of what had transpired during that visit, nor of any ongoing correspondence between the two. But because of all this, Isaac knew that his wife was right, he would have to travel to the south to tell his brother that their father was dead. He steeled himself. You're right. I need to go. He picked up his cloak and walked out of the tent, striding in large steps toward the camels. Rebecca rushed after him, distressed and confused by these sudden movements from a husband who was rarely decisive. I didn't mean right now, she shouted at the back of his head. At least let me prepare some food for the journey. He stopped, looked back at her, and nodded. Emboldened, she continued with another suggestion. Why don't you take Esau with you? Let him protect you. Let him hunt for you. 
Surely Isaac would not resist the temptation to spend several days traveling with his favorite child. But to her surprise, he seemed more resolved about this than he had ever been about anything. No, he replied, I have to do this alone. Alone. Alone on a camel. Alone in the desert, headed toward the south. Alone in the world, no father to rely on. Alone under the expansive sky, passing over hills and dunes that all looked the same, keeping the sea always to his right, searching for any sign that he was moving forward. The silence in and of itself was enough to make a man feel small and lonely, and for a man who had been surrounded by people and their chatter his entire life, it was no easy feat to fill that silence. Isaac did so by worrying. He worried about marauders, though he was carrying virtually nothing worth taking. He worried about where he would sleep each night, though in the end he managed to find or create some shelter each time the sun went down, once with a caravan he chanced upon, once in a small inn along the road, and several times in his own makeshift tent under the stars. More than anything else, Isaac worried about seeing Ishmael. How would he be greeted by his estranged brother? What words would he use to break the sad news? And how would the man respond? With anger? With sadness? With violence? Or perhaps worst of all, with indifference? Each of these possibilities he played out in his head a thousand times, like scenes from a storyteller's tales, trying out different words and different actions to see how they might change things. And when he tired of those scenes, but still had much distance to cover, he moved on to watching other more familiar stories, the burial of his mother, his wedding to the beautiful Rebecca, the arrival of the twins and the first time Abraham had held them, the wells he had dug, the decision not to go north in time of famine. These moments, too, Isaac directed in his head, changing words and actions to create new possibilities. And in only the space of a few days, he found that he had come to appreciate the silence of the desert, to value its expansive space. And so it was that he was startled when at dusk on the fifth day, he realized he was already nearing the plain where his brother had made his home. Crossing over a small spring, Isaac was roused from his thoughts as from a long sleep by the shouting of children. A group of boys, who had obviously been playing in a nearby ravine, ran toward him excitedly, demanding to know who he was. Isaac, still dazed from the desert, stammered that he was the brother of Ishmael, and in an instant the boys were gone. Turning on their heels, they ran as quickly as they could around a hill and out of sight, eager to be useful in announcing the arrival of a visitor, but not yet well-mannered enough to lead him into the camp. Isaac wondered if it had been a mistake to be so candid. Should he have hidden his identity until he was alone with his brother? He fingered the handle of the short knife he had hidden in his robe, the only weapon he had carried with him on this journey. Pointing himself in the direction the boys had run, he followed toward what he hoped was Ishmael's camp, and before he even had a chance to worry about losing his way, a group of men emerged, coming quickly toward him. There must have been about ten of them, walking in a cluster following a tall, slender figure who seemed to be their leader. Isaac could not tell if they were carrying weapons, though under the circumstances it seemed likely. As the men drew nearer, he could see that many of them were indeed armed, though their hands were not on their weapons. He breathed deeply, quieting his quaking limbs, and suppressed the instinct to turn around and flee the other way. Isaac reasoned that men of the desert never kept their swords far from their persons, and though it was tempting to draw his own, he instead forced himself to descend from the camel and raise his arms in a gesture of greeting. To his great relief, 
the leader of the quickly approaching band, now maybe thirty or forty paces away, did the same. Brother, the man shouted this word as he ran toward Isaac and took him into his arms. Isaac felt the pressure of the man's rough embrace. He looked up into the eyes of this tall desert creature and knew beyond a doubt that this was his brother, for they were the eyes of Abraham. He opened his mouth to speak, but before he even managed a word of greeting, the men began hustling him excitedly toward the settlement. Isaac was led to a large ornamented tent hung with colorful tapestries. Soft plush carpets covered its floor and the men placed him in what seemed to be a seat of honor on the largest carpet. Ishmael took his place beside him as more and more people began to file in to join them. Soon the tent was full of men chattering and jostling and peppering him with questions as food and drink were brought in. How had he come to be in this part of the desert? Had he traveled alone? Was he truly the brother of Ishmael? Why had he never visited before? Isaac understood that this was a ceremony, that it was not the time to share his news, and so he made up his mind to enjoy himself in the meantime. Dish after delicious dish was put before him, and fine things to drink as well. He ate his fill, enjoying the conversations and the hospitality of the men, and found himself wondering why he had never made this trip before. Eventually, the party began to dwindle. One by one, the guests took their leave with a joke or a hearty embrace of their host, until the space was empty save for the two men at its center. Isaac now looked at his brother and saw that his face had changed. The jovial smile had given way to a thin scowl. The reddened cheeks had fallen to reveal age lines hardened by dry desert air. The eyes, so much like Abraham's in color and shape, now looked narrow and untrusting. The earlier fears returned. How would his brother, stripped of the need to put on a show, receive him? Finally, his host spoke. Has he sent you? He? Abraham. Has our father sent you here? This was the moment that Isaac had rehearsed during the long hours of desert travel. These were the words he had debated how to deliver. Should he ply Ishmael first with kindness, thanking him for his hospitality? Should he launch into an apology for the injustices of the past? Or should he simply say the words? Even in that moment, Isaac wasn't sure what to do, and it was as if from outside his own body that he heard himself speak, tersely and without ceremony, Abraham is dead. Ishmael said nothing. He looked into Isaac's eyes for a very long time and then did something completely unexpected. He rose from the carpet, his tall frame towering over the still-seated Isaac. He grabbed hold of the corner of his own tunic with both hands and tore the cloth violently. And as he did so, he emitted a sound, a horrible guttural cry that seemed to shake the thick skin walls of the tent. Then, just as unexpectedly and without even a glance over his shoulder, he left. Isaac sat in stunned silence, not knowing what to do next. Where had his brother gone? Would he return? Should Isaac go after him? Should he leave now while it was still possible? After what felt like nearly an hour, there was a rustling at the entrance and a boy entered the tent, maybe nine or ten years old. Timidly, the boy beckoned Isaac to stand and to accompany him outside. Isaac did so and was led across the camp to a much smaller tent. This one was outfitted with a small mattress and a few animal skins. It looked like quarters for a short-term visitor. He recognized his own camel tied up nearby and saw his few belongings inside. He asks that you wait for him. The boy had clearly rehearsed the line, but still he mumbled, uncomfortable speaking to a man so many years his senior. Isaac nodded and the boy started to walk away, but after about ten paces stopped and turned around again. 
apparently having forgotten part of the monologue. He says to feel at home, to walk the grounds. He says, Thou art surely my bone and flesh. This last part was spoken slowly, deliberately, in the formal language of the people of the north. It was a dialect with which Isaac had once been familiar, though he had not heard it for years. In his father's prime, when chieftains and relatives and visitors from Aram would still arrive at their camp, words like these had been spoken over lavish meals and banquets. It was, in Isaac's mind, the language both of royalty and of family, of honor and of intimacy, and he was taken aback to hear it spoken in this foreign place, from the mouth of this desert child. But at the same time it made him feel strangely at home, surrounded by tents and flocks, by men and women and children who were also the children of Abraham. Isaac entered the tent for just a moment before realizing he had nothing to unpack. So he exited again, walking out into a night sky now splashed with millions of tiny stars. And as had been his brother's suggestion, and as had often been his custom in the afternoons and evenings, he walked. He made his way through the camp, noticing the noises of life, a baby crying, a child being hushed by its mother, a group of women chattering as they prepared the next day's meals. Before he knew it, he was at the edge of the camp. Walking a few paces into the surrounding fields, he gave thanks for the night sky before retracing his footsteps to his tent. When Isaac pulled back the flap of the tent, he was not surprised to see Ishmael waiting for him. The older man stood facing away from the entrance. If he had heard his brother come in, he gave no sign. Isaac spoke to his back. It's not the news I wanted to bring. Silence. He tried again. I wish things could have been different. Still nothing. It was his choice and not an easy one. He never really came to terms with it. Never really forgave himself. It, if it had been me, I don't know what I would have. You think I care what you think? Ishmael now turned to face him. The voice was angry and the eyes narrow. You think I want to accept your apology? I didn't come here to apologize. And yet you did. You've always needed to apologize. Isaac was silent. His brother continued. You lived your life as his privileged son, his prince. What was I? An outcast. He wanted what was best for you. Did he? Or did she want what was best for you? We were a threat to you, Hagar and I. We were the only thing standing between you and the inheritance, between you and the covenant, and that's why your bitch of a mother made him send me away into the wilderness. That's enough. Now Isaac was angry as well. She's been dead for years. Let her rest in peace. Come on, tell me it's not true. Here you are, his sole heir. Isaac winced as his brother continued. That's right. I talked to the sons of Keturah. I know exactly what happened. They moved away. I wasn't there to tug on his heartstrings. And so it all went to you, his son, his only one. The words dripped with disdain. A long silence ensued. Isaac felt wounded as if he had been stabbed by his brother's words, their anger, their passion, their truth. But there was one thing he wanted to know, and finally he found the words. Why did you weep? Weep? You cried out. You tore your clothing when I told you he was dead. Why do you weep for a father you hate? I don't hate him. Ishmael took a few steps toward his brother. For a split second, Isaac feared he might strike him, but instead the older man's voice softened. I might hate you. I probably hate your mother, but I don't hate him. A pause. And that's why I weep. I weep for what he did to me, for his cowardice. I weep for what could have been. I weep for the father I hardly knew, for the possibility that I could have been a son to him, learned from him, made him proud, showed him his grandchildren, 
bathed his brow in old age. Any chance of that died today when you showed up, and for that I weep, for that I tear my clothing. Isaac was stunned. These were the words of a man whose pain cut deeply, whose sadness existed just below the surface of his rough exterior. This was neither a ghost to be feared, nor an unfortunate to be pitied. And for the first time in his life he was moved, not by his brother's plight, not by his misfortune, but by his humanity. And in that moment, Isaac understood why he had come. Bury him with me. What? Come with me to Hebron, bury him with me. I don't owe him anything. Don't do it for him, do it for yourself. Isaac took a step forward. His face was now very close to his brother's. I look in your eyes and I see him. I see his smile, his kindness. I see his love for people. I see his determination to build a nation. Our father was flawed, of that you can be sure, but he was a leader of men and so are you. Ishmael was silent as his brother opened the flap of the tent, stepping out into the camp. Look at what you've built here, this camp, this tribe. Look what you have started. He sent you out into the desert. That was his mistake. But you took the opportunity to do just what he would have done. Do you really think he abandoned you? How could he have when his blood flows in your veins, when his spirit shines in your eyes, when his talents are at the tips of your fingers? Do you really think there was even a moment of your life that he wasn't right here with you? Silence. The two men looked at each other. Isaac trembled, feeling as though he had been laid bare, emptied of word and deed. Ishmael's face registered no reaction. His voice betrayed no emotion. Stay as long as you need. I must return quickly. Father's men will be ready for me at the tomb. He has waited long enough to be returned to his ancestors. Do what you must. And with these words, Ishmael walked away, leaving his brother standing alone under the stars. The moon was now high in the sky. Isaac slept poorly that night. His mind turned over and over the conversations of the day, and when he did sleep, fitfully at best, his restless dreams were filled with angry faces and empty desert landscapes. Awakening shortly before dawn, when just a hint of light was evident in the east, he saddled his camel and began the long trek home. Four days later, standing outside the family tomb in Hebron, it seemed to Isaac that it had been quite a long journey for such a short conversation. Not surprisingly, there were throngs of people at Machpelah, family and neighbors, acquaintances and business partners, dignitaries and chieftains who had come to pay respects to a great man. But as Isaac peered southward toward the desert, he was struck only that it was possible to feel so alone, even in the midst of so many people. It's time, he sighed, raising a hand to motion forward the mass of humanity conveying Abraham's body to its resting place. It was a warm day, and as Isaac marched slowly forward, he was aware once again of the stifling wind. He glanced one last time over his shoulder, and this time saw what looked like a figure in the distance growing nearer. Hastily he held up a hand. Feet stopped shuffling. Heads turned to see the mirage take the shape of a man riding a camel. As the crowd watched, the figure dismounted and strode toward the entrance of the cave, taking his place at the head of the procession. Isaac nodded, and without smiling, Ishmael nodded in return. As was the custom, visitors were asked to wait outside while the corpse was borne into the tomb. A hundred pairs of eyes watched as Abraham's body was carried inside, followed by his sons marching side by side. The sun beat down. A hot wind blew from the south. Wordlessly, the two brothers entered the cave to bury their father together.
Published in April of 2017, Micah Stryper is a congregational rabbi and a writer, an American living in Canada. Let's hear from him now. When did you write the story? What was the um, what was the inspiration for the story? So the story actually came about because of a question. I was, as rabbis often are, I was sitting in shul one Shabbat, and um, the Torah was being read. And the Torah says that when Abraham died, his sons, I'm reading it from the Torah right now, his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him together. So I thought to myself, first, first, I've heard this a thousand times, and I thought to myself, how did that happen? Isaac and Ishmael were estranged. And Ishmael didn't even live there, right? He had been expelled from the camp and gone to live in the south in the, the deserts of Arabia. So I thought to myself, how did it happen that these two brothers came to bury their father together? And then I decided to write the story of how it happened, and that's where the story came from. Okay, that makes complete sense. I think then the next question is kind of um, a deeper question, which is sort of using the Bible as, I don't want to say literature, but maybe literature, maybe that is the right word, in terms of what permission do we need or um, what permission do we need to sort of to use the Bible as text rather than sort of a wholly untouchable book, let's say. Is there like rabbinic authority you think that gives you a certain kind of level that you understand a little bit better or is it just kind of free-for-all you can use the stories as you see fit? Right. It's, it's a great question. And I think the Bible actually, in my opinion, intends itself as, as literature. Uh, these are the stories of our people. I, for one, as a, as a reform rabbi, I believe that the stories of the Bible were written by people. They're, they're holy in the sense that they're the stories that we write about our peoplehood and about God. But these are the stories that our people tell um, about us, about where we come from. And there's a very old tradition in Judaism of reading between the lines of the Torah, of asking yourself questions like, why did that happen? Why did that not happen? Why does it say that? Why does it not say that? And that sort, that tradition, of course, is what led to the creation of a whole body of literature called the Midrash. And so in some ways, I, I actually saw this story as like an extended Midrash. You know, I'm asking questions about what happened, what could have happened, and I don't for a second purport that this story I've written is the true story of Isaac and Ishmael. It's, it's fiction, but it's fiction based around what might have happened, and also fiction based around Jewish tradition. I, I tried to sort of pepper the story with little, little midrashic points, little things that you might find in, um, in, in the midrash. Um, or, or within Jewish tradition. The idea that, um, for example, when, um, when Isaac is coming back to find his father on the day of his father's death, it says he, I don't have the, the passage in front of me right now, it says he passed by his sons arguing in the field as usual or something like that. Well, the Midrash says that actually the day that, of Abraham's death was the day that Jacob and Esau had their big fight. And so I, I tried to read this story, or to write this story kind of in the context of a larger Jewish tradition. Not that what I'm writing here is literal history, but more that what I'm writing here is part of, I think, a larger tradition of Jews writing stories about our, about our stories, so to speak. Hmm. Yeah, I could definitely get that. I think also, like, it's interesting you brought up the Midrash, which is kind of like... Um, a rabbinic tradition of storytelling on top of uh, the Torah. 
um, that there was a couple of things that you had done that was different. Uh, there's that midrash that Keturah was actually Hagar, you know, Hagar. Um, and um, it was interesting how you created the, the new character and, and separated those two women. And I didn't know if you had, had thought about that or um, had just created, had just read the text literally and said, well, obviously it's two different women because two different names. I didn't know if you had thought about that question. Yeah, no, I hadn't actually thought about that. You're right, the Midrash does say that. Of course, the Midrash in and of itself is not consistent, right? The Midrash often contradicts itself. So, you know, to say Hagar and Keturah are the same person in one Midrash, and then to say they're two different people in a different part of the Jewish tradition is actually not inconsistent with the inconsistencies of our tradition, so to speak. Um, so, in that case, I, you're right, I really was thinking of Keturah, as a different person, as a third wife, and as a part of this overall, overall Abrahamic family. I think what I was picturing was the idea that Abraham has a family. Um, it's, a, it's a somewhat dysfunctional family yeah. and a yeah. relatively international family because, of course, his children go and settle a lot of different places and they ultimately become different nations. Um, you know, Isaac becomes the Israelites and Ishmael becomes the parents of the Israel of the, of the Ishmaelites and you have Midianites and various other people who come from Abraham. So I was trying to write a story that exists on both a family level and and a semi-geopolitical level at the same time, but right. really the story of a family. Yeah, I think that's what uh, um, George Lucas was defending Star Wars. It's not, I forget what. And he was just like, at the end of the day, it was just a kind of a soap opera in space. That was how he, he kind of did it. I think it's kind of biblical in that sense too which is is kind of people are interested in stories of families and places and how we interact with each other you know the relationships so i I agree that that kind of makes sense with what you're talking about well i'll definitely take the comparison to george lucas thank you yeah and at the same time i think i was thinking of what isaac and ishmael mean in terms of 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 nationhood i was thinking of jews and muslims and the ways that we see ourselves as family in the ways that we that we see ourselves as estranged. And so I was I really was thinking about that secondarily, but thinking about that at the same time as I was writing this story about two people who have a sense of commitment to one another but also a, a strong distrust of each other. Interesting. You see that um practically nowadays as well or how, it's just that was just a backdrop kind of thing like uh practically speaking today you were trying to incorporate that into the story just from their perspective or how we relate to let's say current politics or things like that yeah well i'm, I'm not trying to solve the israeli arab conflict through this story but i was thinking about what it means today as well this idea of jews and muslims as being cousins yet adversaries you know we share a a land we share a family we share a history we share various elements of trauma from that history and so the the isaac and the ishmael that 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 i wrote here which i think are based on the isaac and ishmael of the torah also share a land and a history and a and a trauma we're all shaped by our by we're all shaped by our experience and so i think that was the point that i was trying to make here and do you think that the the case of having different mothers but the same father changes that dynamic versus having, let's say, maybe if they had the same mother, it would have been different? Um, do you find that that would, that would create difference in the way they relate to each other? Well, certainly in the story it does, yes. And, and I think this was probably an element of 
of um, poly, um, what's the word, um, when you have multiple wives? <laughs> Um, yeah, this is probably an element of polygamous life, that there were favorite wives and less favorite wives. And, you know, so here you have a, here you have a family that, again, is sort of colored by the circumstances of its life, where you have a child of a favorite wife and a child of a less favorite wife, and how they, and how they interact. Uh, right. So I think that definitely, that definitely colors it. Um, it definitely shapes it. It shapes it in the Torah. There's no question that Ishmael is, in some sense, the victim of the situation between um, Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. Ishmael gets kicked out of the camp because he's uh, not the child of Sarah for various reasons. And so I think that was real in, in, in the ancient world. Whether that actually plays into the current geopolitical system is a whole, or situation is a whole different question. Sure. Um, I don't think it does in the same way. But certainly, you know, in the, on the level where this is a story about a family, I think that that's a, an important element of the story of Isaac and Ishmael. I think that also brings up the question of secrets within a family. In some ways, uh, the Torah recounts so many of these secrets that we know. Um, I wonder how much they used to keep secrets from each other, who was the favorite, who was not the favorite. There's this weird, um, almost honesty that the Torah presents these things with, which I think nowadays we would find, I don't know, I don't know how to put it, uh, uncharacteristic of people, perhaps, um, mm -hmm. where who keep more secrets between family members and things that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, the Torah doesn't even pretend that the families, in Genesis in particular, are not dysfunctional. Right. Uh, it, it, it's really out there with the, the, the secret keeping and the favoritism and the, and the conflict between siblings. Every, every generation of Genesis is a, is a story of conflict between siblings. And so, uh, to me, I, I think the question you're asking is an important one. And I think it's actually just a reflection of real life. No family is not dysfunctional in some way. And so while the Genesis story is maybe in some ways a caricature of that, uh, it's, it's a reflection of the lives that we live. We have conflict with our siblings. We, um, have, we have conflict with our parents. We, as children, are shaped by the choices that our parents made, and our parents didn't always make the best choices, and yet we love them anyway. Uh, and so that, that I think is, you know, what, I don't think they were keeping more secrets back then than, than we are now. And I'm not sure that the Torah is more or less honest about it than a lot of other literature, but it certainly is honest about it. The, 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 Jewish, um, the Jewish holy texts never try to say Abraham and Sarah were perfect. King right. David was yeah. perfect. They never try to say that. They present them as real people with real flaws. And so that, to me, I think presents an opening to write a story about really imperfect people who are doing the best they can and who are trying to, to be a family in some way. Definitely. And it's interesting, I learned something new that you had, you, you were saying that the Medrash says that, um, that, that the two brothers were fighting and that's a, and Abraham died on that day. And that's interesting in parallel to what the Medrash says about how Sarah died, which is right during the Akedat Yitzchak, that she died when, um, uh, Adrian came and told her what was going on. Um, it's so interesting to think of these families as having death tied to these big events and how, um, how the big events or conflicts almost between these people create death or destruction in some sense. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah, and also how um, how people can hold a family together. I think that the, 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 the Torah presents 
Abraham in that sense as kind of holding the family together, that when he dies, the family breaks apart. Uh, and I think that's real. I think, I mean, I mean, I know people who've had that experience where a patriarch or a matriarch passes away and then people drift apart or they fight over the inheritance or they simply just find that they don't have a lot to talk about anymore. So I think, again, I think these are real experiences. And if the Torah is talking about it and the Midrash is talking about it, it's because these are real life experiences. Yeah. And that brings up the, que- the next question, which is, um, in this story, uh, Ishmael starts to talk about both Abraham and Sarah. And Isaac seems to respond that, yes, I'm okay with my father having flaws, but he defends his mother and doesn't really admit that there was a flaw there. And I'm curious as to that relationship between Isaac and his parents, where he was okay with his father having flaws, but not his mother. Oh, interesting. I didn't, I'm not sure I thought about it that way as I was writing it. Um, Isaac, in this, the, the passage that you're describing, Isaac is responding to Ishmael calling his mother a name. So right. that's where, again, I don't have it exactly in front of me, but he essentially says, she's dead, let her, let her rest. Mm-hmm. And so that was where I saw him responding to the, to the insult, not necessarily to the implication that she was imperfect. That being said, again, if you go back to Jewish tradition, the Torah does talk about, and the Midrash really responds to this idea that Isaac loved his mother deeply and that he was bereft when she died. Um, and his marriage to Rebecca, which comes shortly after Sarah's death, the Torah says that he finds comfort in the death of his mother by marrying this, this new woman that he loves, um, Rebecca. So I think there probably is something to the idea that um, Isaac would have defended his um defended his, his, his mother because he loved her so deeply. Not necessarily that he needed her to be perfect, but that um, he, he just, maybe he just felt that, that kind of a deep love for her and, and wasn't willing to hear her called a name, essentially. Do you think that that's how sons react more? Do you think that we're more willing to see our fathers as flawed or men maybe as flawed than women or... You think that this is a unique Isaac trait that he's trying to, um, that he's just defending his mother, but it's not necessarily representative of any larger kind of idea. Yeah, I'm smiling as you say that because I was thinking something like that as I was answering, but then I didn't want to get too Freudian or sure. um, speak to something that I that I don't really know a lot about. But I think there's something to what you just said, and I think we would have to we would have to really dig into what it means what it means to be the son of a mother versus the son of a father. Um, yeah, I don't have, I don't I don't know exactly how to answer that question, but I think you I think you may be onto something. Fair enough. Uh, not all questions need answers, right? That's that's another one of our traditions, I believe, as well. Um, sure. Interesting. Um, I guess Ishmael and they don't ever really get to, it seems, back to quote-unquote normal. I don't know if that's the right word, but they're not, they don't seem as amicable, let's say, as they might have as by the end of the story, right? But, they, but Ishmael does return. So why, why does he return? What's he trying to get out of the experience? Or what did maybe yeah, so, I convince him? Or how does that work? Yeah, so the, the, the Torah, all the Torah says is that Isaac and Ishmael buried their father together. It doesn't say they embraced. It doesn't say they went out for coffee. It doesn't say they lived happily ever after. All it says is they buried their father together. And then as I was thinking about it, I was thinking that this is a, this is a person who has a deep sense of being, of having been hurt and probably a great deal of anger 
at the situation of estrangement. And so that, in the story, that was as far as I could see him being willing to go. He, he, he wants to come bury his father. It doesn't mean that he's necessarily making up with his brother, but in a sense, he's, um, the two of them, I think, th- this is the story of the two of them recognizing their obligations to one another as part of a family. Um, and in fact, in the section right before that, um, I wrote a, a dialogue between Isaac and Ishmael where Isaac says, bury him with me, come to Hebron, bury him with me. Ishmael responds, I don't owe him anything, to which Isaac says, don't do it for him, do it for, do it for yourself. This idea that your father, Abraham, was always with you. You are a part of him. You are a product of him. Isaac praises Ishmael here <clears throat> for being a leader, for being a creative force. A lot of these things that Abraham was as well, he sees in his estranged half-brother, Ishmael. So the point there of that dialogue is you are a product of your, of your parents, even with all their flaws. And so to come and bury your parent is, in a sense, it's an act of respect for a parent. Uh, it's also an act of closure for yourself in a situation where someone has has been through difficult things. It doesn't have to mean a full reconciliation of these two brothers. Although, in you know, I, I tried to leave the story open to where there could be a full reconciliation. The Midrash doesn't exactly um, answer that, although we can imagine that Isaac and Ishmael never became best friends and went to play golf together. But I think the door is open, at least in the, the way I left it at the end of the story. The door is open for more, but what they've really accomplished here was um, recognizing a sense of obligation to one another as members of a family and as children of the same parent. Yeah. There's, there's an interesting tension between um, the obligation to oneself versus obligation to family. Uh, and in a biblical sense, it, it seems there's a larger obligation almost to family uh, than there is to self. Even in this story, um, where it's his father, so he has to go back and bury him despite the trauma that was inflicted because of his father. Uh, it's, it's just interesting to, to see that brought out so clearly that sometimes blood outweighs your personal feelings about things. Um, or maybe it's just more that Isaac's right and you really do have to forgive somebody else to kind of move on with your life. I'm not sure. Right. I, I actually, I really saw it as an act of closure for Ishmael to come and, and participate in burying his father. And also as an act of recognizing the, the connection between himself and his father. You know, the, the Islamic tradition says that Abraham and Ishmael continued to have a relationship that they that Abraham visited Ishmael that they saw each other and that Ishmael was also a recipient of Abraham's ideas and so it, I wrote this from the Jewish perspective and and I'm Jewish obviously um, but that idea that Abraham could have had some kind of a separate relationship albeit a a charged one and a um, and a and an imperfect one with Ishmael that was part of what I was getting at um, here was that Ishmael comes and comes to bury his father as a recognition that um, he is his father's child despite the imperfections of his parents. And I think as we grow into adulthood, um, we also recognize 
that our parents are just people. They're just doing the best they can, and sometimes our parents mess up royally. And that doesn't make them bad or good necessarily. It makes them flawed just like we are. So I saw it as a kind of a a coming-of-age moment for Ishmael here to recognize that he has control over this. He can recognize his connection to his father without having to uh, forgive all the injustices of the past. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned the Islamic tradition because the Torah itself is not fully clear on the relationship between Abraham and all of his children, right? Uh, when he sends away the other children, Keturah's children, it says he gives them gifts, but it's not clear what that means, and there's uh, there's a lot of midrashim and interpretations of what that word gifts means and how much Abraham was trying to be involved. It's, it's ironic, right, that he accepts all gifts and then is the one who also sends away children. It's a very strange um, parallel or almost dichotomy within a man where he's accepting of everybody, but he also sends away, like banishes people to other places. Right. Yeah. Because he's known for his hospitality, but also he, um, his family falls apart right there under his tutelage. Right. And, and so you have, and that in some ways, that's what this story is about is what happens in the next generation um, of, of, of that family. Yeah. And in some ways the whole right first, the whole genesis is just about families, as you were saying before, and, and how people might mess up or how they're trying to rectify old issues or uh, make their own way through the mistakes of their parents and, and how generations take that and, and build on it and, we, and tell those stories to keep that progress moving forward. Right. And also how we learn from our parents, how we become... Uh, disciples of our parents in some way. And again, and there again, as I think as you grow into adulthood, I'm, I'm in my forties now. So, you know, that's, I'm older now than I was ten years ago. Let's put it that way. And so I think more and more you recognize what you have learned from your parents and how much you are like your parents. So I saw Ishmael here recognizing some of that in midlife or maybe even late midlife, because Ishmael is actually older than Isaac. They're all biblical ages, right? So the, yep. the age of 75 is kind of meaningless. I think they're, I think they're kind of late midlife in this story. Um, recognizing how, how much he has learned from his father, even though he's angry at him. And how, what kind of maturity and what kind of nuance does it take to, to recognize that somebody else was flawed and you can be angry at them, but you can still absolutely be a product of what they were. Yeah, it's, it's a strange question in terms of lots of things, right? We There's always that question between separating art from artists, right? There are a lot of artists who we don't necessarily um, like as people or did terrible things as people, but their art is beautiful or it illuminates something. Um, and, and there's always that debate, right, that we are products of people who've done, quote-unquote, bad things or what we consider bad things, and yet we still are products of that, um, and we still have to respect that kind of tradition. Uh, right, and every one of us has done bad things. Who among us hasn't hurt anybody? And right. so why, why should Abraham be any different? Yeah. So now that we're at that point, and you are a little bit older, I know this story came out um, a few years ago, you, uh, and you wrote it a few years ago. How do you see it now? How do you, does it, as you're revisiting it for the podcast, did something new strike you? Did it, how does it fit into maybe work you're working on now? How did it, how does yeah. it work? I appreciate you asking that question. I think the story is about three or four years old. Um, and I, as I was reading it, I realized two things. There were two major things going on in my life when I wrote this story. One is that um, my marriage had just ended. 
I had I had separated earlier, maybe a few months ago. And the other is that my grandfather had just died. So I, I think I can see both of those things going on in this story. There, the section about the desert, where I write about Isaac being kind of alone in the desert, having to figure figure things out for himself, that to me I think was working through the idea of being alone, of suddenly being partnerless, um, suddenly having to sort of stand on your own two feet and figure out life uh, for yourself after having been married for 16 years. Um, and, I, and by the way, I'm fascinated by this motif of the, the desert in, in, in the biblical literature. The desert is this place of this place of becoming, where you're no longer what you were, and you're not yet what you're going to be. You know, the Israelites wander in the desert for 40 years between Egypt and the Promised Land. They're no longer slaves, but they're not quite free yet. Um, and, I, and you see that that motif all over the place. So I, I think I I must have felt myself in a kind of a desert in that place in my life. And, and the other the other thing I really see here in terms of my own personal life is that my grandfather had just passed away, and so I, I was watching my mother lose her father, and experiencing through her what it is to lose to lose a parent and to have those that sense of obligation and love and loss. Um, and so as I read this story, I really I really see all of those pieces of 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 what I was then. It actually is still in. I haven't written a piece of fiction like this um, in the last few years, and reading it again today after not having looked at it for for a little while made me want to write more of this because I think these stories call out to us. They the, the stories of the Torah really cry out to be made personal, to be made about you, because they're supposed to be about all of us. And so it makes me want to flip through the Torah and see what other stories are in there to be written. Uh, yeah, I think there's a, especially in the last, I don't know, maybe 100 years, 150 years, there's been a healthy tradition of people looking back to the Bible to create more stories. Um, I think that's, that's an interesting, uh, pursuit, uh, that's been, that's been going on for a little bit of time now. I think it's interesting that you were mentioning about, um, the desert and loss and how, um, Isaac himself you were talking about how they were looking for, he was looking for, he found comfort in, in a wife or another woman that he loved and how it's interesting how there's again this dichotomy of finding balance within the self, within the desert, and then also finding other people to fill that void in some sort of way. Um, and how humans do look for both, uh, comfort from self, but still need other people around maybe to help balance, um, the sadness that's, that's happening. As things kind of fall apart. Yeah, I think you said it beautifully. And I think in the story, Isaac feels like he has to do this himself. He has to go talk to Ishmael himself because this is something he kind of owes his brother. And in order to do that, he has to go through the desert by himself. So he has to spend this period of time lost in his own thoughts and in his own self. And you, you make a really good point. At the same time, all of that selfness so to speak, is really intended to um, to deepen the connection with others. And so I think those are two pieces of what we are as human beings. We we need a strong sense of self, and we also need a strong sense of um, who we are in relation to other people. I think Judaism encourages that. Um, Judaism is very much a team sport. We pray together. We uh, you, you need a minion to have uh, to have a full service. We study together. Um, 
much of Judaism is done in community, and yet Judaism also encourages you as an individual to grow and to study and to learn and to and to to, to find yourself to be the best version of yourself. Um, that to me is in some ways what what the High Holy Days are about every year. We're meant to really dig into the selves that we are and the selves that we'd like to become. And that's a very personal, very individual process. But you do it surrounded by lots of other people who are also going through the same experience. So you have the support of others while you're busy figuring yourself out. Yeah. And I think also, as you're saying, with age comes that maturity, because I think a, a very nice feature of your story is now Isaac has to go do it himself to find his brother and reconcile. Whereas when Abraham was alive and he wanted a wife, let's say, to comfort himself for his mother, Abraham is the one who sent out Eliezer to go find him a wife. So he didn't really take on that undertaking of establishing his own household, his own family almost. It's only now that he gets older and, and his father passes away. There's some metaphor there about how he has to take on the role of Abraham and go do the things that are necessary in order to reconcile and, and, and build a family in, in a broader sense. Um, and that's right. Yeah, and that, and that Isaac also has, he's spent the last however many years not going out and doing things like this. Isaac, and here's another place where I, um, where I sort of co-opted the Midrash. Um, the Midrash says that Isaac's primary uh, accomplishment was to redig the, we- the wells of water that his father had, had dug. So that what Isaac really is, uh, Isaac is, um, is largely engaged in teaching his father's teachings, right? He's continuing mm-hmm. the tradition of his father. Isaac never left the land of Israel, according to according to Jewish tradition. That's the place where I broke with the Midrash, because I couldn't figure out how to make this story happen without yeah. Isaac traveling to get Ishmael. Um, but So Isaac, in a lot of ways, is a, is a character who, um, or is an individual whose um, who's, who's primary pursuit is in um, is in keeping with his father's teachings. So part of what I saw here was him realizing his father's just died, realizing that this falls on him now. He's going to have to leave the land of Israel in order to go get his brother. He's going to have to take responsibility for this. He's going to have to grow up in a sense uh, at, at age 75 or whatever that number represents um, in terms of real years. And he's going to have to find find a piece of himself as he grows into what you might call, I guess, the second half of adulthood. Yeah. And and another thing about Isaac is right. The, the Midrash says he was blind almost. Um, and that's an interesting comment to have on a man who almost, the Midrash almost plays down Isaac's role. You know, we have the triumvirate almost of a vote, but it's almost as if Abraham and Jacob are the more important "Quote unquote of the of the three, and Isaac's kind of this placeholder almost between. So I do like the agency that you're giving him there. And sometimes agency is more quiet um, and and more just a personal journey. It's almost uh, that the other two were more public. You know, one had twelve sons, one's trying to proselytize, whereas I, Isaac's more of an introspective man. He would be sitting and and kind of thinking on himself in a more uh, personal way. I think. Across. Yeah, he's like the forgotten middle child of the patriarchs, yeah. right? He's, he's definitely less charismatic than Abraham and Jacob. He's a little, he's a lot less daring. He doesn't, he doesn't travel. He doesn't lead in quite the same way. He has some accomplishments for sure, 
but he's no Abraham and he's no Jacob in a sense. So this, but, but then I thought to myself, Isaac and Ishmael can only have buried their father together if Isaac made that happen. And so this, this was the story to me of how Isaac, poor, sweet, nebishy Isaac, found it within himself to reconcile his family. And it's back to that point you're making about how some people hold family together. Sometimes I think that it is the quiet, right? They're the ones who hold the family together because they're not, as you were saying, Abraham's always looking out to other people and, and sort of his family is dissolving beneath his feet as he's sort of trying to gather guests from outside the family. Um, whereas Isaac is, is quiet, but is still aware of how to bring family together. Yeah, I can see that. Of course, Isaac's two sons don't love each other either. Sure. Right. So as we said, you know, every generation in Genesis has its own dysfunction. But, but I do see your point. He has a whole different kind of strength, a whole different kind of, um, of charisma and a different way of being a patriarch than either his father or, or his son does. And Isaac is kind of the lesser touted of the three patriarchs. Yeah. But I think he does have a certain strength and something to be admired. Yeah, and I, I will push back on you a little bit that um, it seems that uh, Isaac's two sons do get along better as they get older, meaning we don't have the same open question as if they to if they got along. It seems that they do get along actually better later in in the Bible. Although you could argue that maybe it's the same mother. You know, we we get back into the whole we do a whole circle back to our earlier conversation. Um, but it is interesting to see how how different family dynamics and different personalities affect uh, how things uh, tr- transpire in the, in the Torah. Right. You're absolutely right. And it, I, I, Isaac and, sorry, Jacob and Esau do reconcile in a whole different way than Isaac and Ishmael do later in the Torah. They embrace and they exchange gifts, although they don't really interact ever again after that. Yeah. Right? So was it a real reconciliation? Was it a... Was it for show? Was it a let's embrace and never talk to each other again? It's not exactly clear. Um, but you're right. They do, they do reconcile in a different way than Isaac and his brother had done. Although it's not clear that Isaac or Rebecca, for that matter, were a whole lot of help. You know, they also had favorite children. They chose favorites. They, they scheme against each other with their children. So it only goes to show, in, again, that we are the product of what we yeah. Of what we know, that if that's the family that that he that they had grown up in, that that would have been what they know as well. Thank you for listening to Exegesis. If you enjoyed what you heard, please comment, rate, subscribe, and share. You can also support the show and the journal by donating through the website, PayPal, and Patreon. Much of what the journal does is possible because of supporters like you. Thank you, and see you next time.